Good morning. This morning's scripture is Genesis 11, 31 through 32, and 12, 1 through 4. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you, Meredith. My first real job, other than a paper route, if you can imagine this, was at a funeral home. Um, I remember driving there. So I must have just been 14. The the rules were a little different then. (laughs) And uh, it was a great gig for a kid that was 14-ish. It was about three nights a week. Um, All I had to do was sit there in the back and answer the phone. And so mostly I did homework. Uh, But I had some other responsibilities too. And one of those responsibilities was to actually close up the funeral home. And what that meant was Uh, turning off lights (laughs) at the funeral home. It meant that if there was a body laying in state that I would have to go, and if there was a flower or something on a lapel or a flower being held, I I would have to grab those flowers out of the coffin. I would have to put those flowers in the refrigerator so they didn't wilt overnight. And then I would have to turn off the lights. Did I mention that I was like nine when I was doing this? And that is a lot to process for a 14-year-old kid, right? In those first few weeks, I I evaluated life. I did. And not many teenagers, you know, get uh, the experience of having to go into the embalming room and take the hairdryer off of the body because the hair needs to, you know, not burn up. That would be a good thing, right? It forced me to think a little bit. Another role that I had was to play host for visitors when they came in uh, wanting to view people. And I remember very vividly the very first family that came in that was different. They were, they were just, they were different. Most, most families, uh, I could say largely the case was that they would come in and there was this peace. I mean, sure, there was sorrow, right? But there was, there was faith. There, there was trust. There was some assurance that what was happening was not the end for their loved one. But then this family came in, and the, there's this tension in the air. There's, there's this almost anger. There's this um, despair. And I, I could, I, even as a 14-year-old kid, I could have cut that anguish with, with a knife. It was so thick. And when they left, I did a little more evaluating. Why were they different? What caused that? And I concluded pretty quick. Didn't take long. These people don't have faith. 
These people don't know God. This family, for whatever reason, hasn't trusted Jesus, hasn't made him any part of their existence, and that was the difference. Knowing God makes a difference, and it's the kind of difference that's even palpable to a 14-year-old kid. I continue to be astounded at the difference that Christ makes in the lives of people. Um, I've been at this game for a while, but uh, every once in a while, I still have to go and, and say those goodbyes, those, those last words uh, to people. And in the last couple of weeks, months, um, I've had to do that a couple times. And uh, one of those was Ryan Phillips. And I sat and I watched as Ryan just finished well. I mean, it was amazing. I... I, I talked to Kate after he passed away, and he, she, she told me a little story. She said, um, and I'm going to take a little longer with the first service here and just share these kind of details with you. Um, she said when he died that he was so weak he couldn't move anything. He, he, he could barely talk. But in the very last minutes, uh, Ryan was a man of, of faith, and he loved Jesus. In the very last minute, she said, he kind of looked beyond me, and he raised up his hand, and he started reaching for something, and then he breathed his last. And I thought, and she knows what he was reaching for. I thought, could that be Jesus? Could that be heaven? And surely, surely that's the case. This last week, um, I went up to Kansas City, and I had that same kind of a conversation with Janice Flickting. And um, Janice uh, talked about how thankful she was for the one person. It just took one person, she said, to show her what a real Christian was. That one person, for some of you old-timers who have been around for a while, was Judy Swickard. You remember Judy and Cal Swickard. And Judy was a co-worker of Janice's. And she said, in Judy, I saw what a real Christian was because she lived her faith. And through her, Janice came to find faith, and then she found her own faith. And because of that faith, Chuck and Janice, over the years, found a way to be Jesus to others, being who they were. They were they were bikers. That was one of the things that they were. And so they found a Christian biker group to be a part of that served other people and shared the news of Jesus all over the country at rallies everywhere. And what they would do is they would roll in and they would just serve. They would just hand out coffee and water and they would just do whatever they could so that they could get to share the message of Jesus with people who desperately needed with him. And she talked about being so thankful to God that she found faith in the first place, but then that he allowed her to be a part of those kind of opportunities. And here's a person, another person, finishing well. The race has been run, and she can look back, and she can say, I wasn't perfect, but Jesus was. Jesus is. And so that's made all the difference. And the question after I have those kind of conversations, when I'm on the elevator and I'm down, you know, going down, I, I just, I always in my brain think this question. How do I live this day so that I can live like that on my last day? Because here are people who have it figured out. Here are people who have assurance and who have peace 
and they're going through the, the scariest thing that any of us will ever go through, and yet they're able to do it with grace and with faith. And the answer, of course, is to know God. That makes all the difference. And so today, in our, as we start our VBS series, this first lesson is about the story of Abraham or Abram, and um, it is about how to know God. And as our VBS kids come on that very first day and they learn the story of Abraham, they will learn how they can know the God of the universe that created them. And so a couple things today. First, how we can know God, and then second, how it's possible for us to know God. How we can know God. Now, there are a few stages of the journey and here that I'm going to lay out, and all of us are somewhere in this process. So one of these points is going to hit you where you live. Number one, get out of your culture. Do you want to know God? Get out of your culture. At the end of chapter 11, it is the, the end of a genealogy. That's just uh, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so. And at the very end of chapter 11, we come to this guy named Terah and his three sons. His three sons were Abram and Nahor and Haran. And their homeland was Ur of the Chaldeans. And Ur is a crazy advanced civilization for the time. It probably, a uh, city for the time. It probably had a population of about 250,000 people. They were people of means. There were very nice houses with open courtyards. There were, there was, there's been very nice jewelry that's been found at this place. Uh, the arts, they could tell when they excavated Ur was, uh, were alive and well. There was musical entertainment all over the place. That was very common. And Ur was defended very well. It had a very big army. They had really ornate chariots. Even their weaponry uh, had artistically engraved um, features. And the people there were well-educated. Uh, the literacy rate was pretty extensive, which was crazy for that, that day. And all this to say that people in Ur weren't lowly, tent-dwelling, roaming shepherds that we would think of when we read the Old Testament. Terah and his family lived in sophistication. They lived in luxury. They lived in literacy. They lived in culture. This was probably Ur's golden era. We could say that, right? But in the middle of this great place to live, this metropolitan area, all is not well. With all those positive marks, the worship was totally pagan. There were three to 400 gods that were worshiped in Ur of the Chaldees. Uh, but the primary god was the moon goddess. And her name, no kidding, was Nana. Everybody say Nana. Nana, that's fun to say, right? Uh, and Ur was the center of lunar Worship, And so Terah and his sons, Abram, Nahor, Haran, were worshipers of Nana. And that's kind of bananas. Yeah, right. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, some of you helped me out. We get, we get this information also from Joshua 24. You say, how can you know that they worshiped other gods? Joshua says this, uh, that the God of Israel long ago said this, that your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, they served, what's the word? Other gods. They didn't just acknowledge these gods. They were all in on worshiping these gods. Do you know what Terah means? Terah means moon. 
And that was the, the primary goddess that was worshipped in Ur. And so when you start naming your family after your religion, you've, you've bought the farm. And the point is that this is the end of the genealogy. If we go back to the beginning of the genealogy, we have to go all the way back to chapter four in Genesis. There, we've, we read of Adam and Eve, and they have two sons that you're familiar with, Cain and Abel, and Cain ends up killing Abel, right? And then Cain has a family, and his family genealogy is listed, and God is not ever mentioned in it. It's only the achievements of Cain and his son and his son and his son, and it's as if they're saying, look what I've done, and it all points to man. But then after that, the text says that Adam and Eve had another son, and his name was Seth. And the genealogy is very short, very sweet, but absolutely different from the genealogy of Cain. It says this, to Seth was also born a son and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the, what's the word? Lord. And it means this, that Seth's line worshiped God. Cain's line lived for themselves, but Seth's family was devoted to the Lord. And so if we trace seven chapters later, the Seth line, the Seth family tree, we come to our text. And what we see is the very end of the line. And Terah, who is a part of Seth's family, Seth's line, that began to worshiping God in the first place, they have come down to the end of the line and they are no longer worshiping the real God. God is all but forgotten. The very last people to hold knowledge of the true God have just lost it because they're worshiping Nana. And add to that even more disaster, verse 30 tells us that Sarah is barren. And so there's no children coming to this line. This family is at the end. They're at the end spiritually. They're at the end physically. And the idol worship and the barrenness of Sarah and the end of the line, all that's an effective metaphor for hopelessness. There's no foreseeable future. There's no human power to invent a future. The human race and human history have just hit a dead end when it comes to worshiping God and it looks like it's over. When I was talking to Chuck and Janice, um, they, were, they were talking about some biker rally that they were a part of. And um, the CMA, it's maybe one of the biker rallies they didn't want to go to, but, but you know, they, they went. They were, they were faithful in going. Um, sometimes they were hot and miserable and, you know, a long way away. But they went. And the CMA strategy is, once they got there, was just to serve. And mostly... Um, they were serving very hungover people in the morning. You know, the biker rallies are known for lewdness and just doing whatever and partying it up. And what they would do is they would go around the campsite in the morning and they would offer coffee, they would offer water, they would offer pancakes, they would offer whatever they could offer to help. And in the process, they would begin conversations. And at particular bike rally, there was a, there was a couple that they began to talk with 
and they found out that this couple had come to this particular bike rally, and it was their last hurrah. They had come to have one more weekend, one more weekend of partying. That was the whole point of the rally for him, for them, to live it up one more time, and then they were going to go home and end their lives. They were going to kill themselves. They had come to the end of the line. Maybe, as you came in here today, maybe you feel like that. Maybe spiritually, you're at the end of the line. Maybe physically, you're at the end of your rope. Maybe it's hopeless. Maybe you've lost a job. Maybe you've lost a spouse. Maybe you've lost a child. Maybe you've lost your health, your, your time, your money. Whatever it is, maybe it seems like the end. And when we're at the end, here's what I think. I think God speaks to us pretty clearly. God spoke to this couple through Christian bikers like Chuck and Janice, and for the first time in a long time, they could see hope because of God's call in their life. And they were so impacted by the story of Jesus that they went home, and instead of ending it all, they began a new life, and they began to redirect their focus towards God, and they began to step out of the things that had brought them death. They began to step out of their culture. And by the time the bike rally rolled around that next year, they brought four friends with them who had also given their lives to Christ. The first step back to hope is to redirect your focus to the real God. God comes to this family. They're worshipers of uh, the moon God, they're, they're not good, they're not qualified, they're not deserving, but God calls them anyway. And he says, the first step for you to know me is to get out of your godless culture and step into the knowledge of the only God who can really do something. And God says that same thing to you and to me today. The, the gracious call, call of God will transform you no matter how many drunken biker rallies you've been to. The call of God doesn't come because you're qualified. The call of God qualifies you to come. And the call means hope. So you can get out of your culture, out of your moon worship, whatever form that may take for you, and begin to know God. And that's what Tara does. He gets his family out of the culture. Secondly, he... Uh, if you want to know God, you need to get out of your family. Get out of your family. What is this? Tara takes his family and they get out of her and they travel about 600 miles away to a place called Haran. And uh, yeah, Haran is also one of Tara's sons. Okay, so Haran, the son, dies back in Ur. And then Tara takes his family to Haran and that's where Tara dies. Very confusing, right? And also on top of that, Nahor is Tara's son, but Nahor is also Tara's father. They share the same name. And then on top of that, Sarah is actually Tara's daughter and marries Tara's son, Abram. And then Abram and Sarah are half siblings. And so they had all different kinds of sensibilities about these things back then. Uh, But aside from that, it's a mega game of connect the dots and it's super hard to keep straight, okay? But in this crazy mixed up family, God comes to Abram. Um, His name is Abram here. It will be later be, be Abraham. Abram means father. Abraham means father of many, 
Okay, so when we start, when we, when we meet Abram in the first place, uh, we could say his name meant daddy, and then later on it's going to mean big daddy. Okay, that's it. God comes specifically and personally to Abram. And in, in verse one, he says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land I will show you. And literally the text means get yourself out. Take you, you, yourself, you, get out. And for some reason, when God had called Terah and his family out, they only decided to go halfway. Halfway they thought was good enough. And they stopped in Haran. And you can understand Abram's spot. It was a highly patriarchal society. Uh, The big daddy called all the shots and big daddy was Terah, right? And so I'm not going to do anything. I'm staying where dad tells us to stay. And then God comes in and says, no, no, no. I want you. Even if your family says they're not coming with you, I want you to get yourself out. And it means leave them behind if you have to. And that's what Abraham does. He leaves his father's house. He leaves his father's people. And he begins to follow God himself. And the point to hear is this, that he follows God himself. It's not about the whole family anymore. It's about Abraham following God personally, himself. And there's a couple things that we need to say about that. Number one, the only way to know God is to know him personally, by yourself. It will never work just to be related to people who know God or to rub shoulders at work with somebody that, rubs, uh, that knows God or to be involved in a Christian family that knows God. You can't know God by association. You have to get out. You have to follow God. Do you know God yourself? Some of you come because your spouse wants you to come. If they didn't come, would you know God? Some of you come because your parents want you to come. If they didn't come, would you know God? Some of you come because a friend really wants you to come here. If that friend wasn't in the picture, would you know God. At the end, the question will not be, what did your wife do with God? What did your mom do with God? What did your dad do with God? What did your boss do with God? The, youth, the, the question will be, what did you do with God? What did you do with Jesus? Get out of your family. Sometimes that means leaving. It's not enough to hang with your family at church and think that you can know God. You can't know by God by hanging on to somebody else's coattails. It has to be your own faith. The second thing we need to say here is that knowing God doesn't mean you'll have all the answers. The call to Abraham is volitionally radical. He says, leave everyone you know, leave everything you know. It was, it, it was a willful decision by Abraham to trust that God was going to lead him to somewhere that would be safe and right. And the important note is that Abraham doesn't know where that is. If you dig through the text, you find a lot of things that Abraham doesn't know. He says, go to a land I will show you. That's what God says. But there's no information other than that. And so Abraham doesn't know where. He doesn't know where he's going. God says, I will make of you a great nation. But Abraham knows my wife is barren and he doesn't know how that will happen. God says, I will give you this land. Abraham says, 
win. And if you track the rest of his life, he never gets to own any land except one piece of ground so that he can bury his wife. Abraham doesn't know where, he doesn't know how, he doesn't know when, he doesn't know a lot of things at the start. He doesn't have the answers. And even at the end of his life, he doesn't have some of those answers. And that's where some of us get hung up, isn't it? Mostly people want to know God. They want to know God will do what God will do before they commit to him. That's the issue. They want to know the path, how it's all going to go before they decide to follow God. The question is, if I become a Christian, will I have to do X or will I have to stop doing Y? And the purpose of the question is to try to retain some control. It's like saying, I'll follow, but only if I get to lead. (laughs) That doesn't make any sense, does it? Knowing God means following him wherever he leads, and we won't always know where that is. Abraham didn't know where and when and how, but that's Christianity. That's following God. Submission is what it takes. And submission is what Abraham had in Hebrews eleven eight in the hall of faith. We read this, that Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive in his inheritance And he went out, not knowing where he was going. He didn't know. He didn't have all the answers. Knowing God means that it has to be our own faith, and it has to be our own choice, even if we don't have all the answers. It's total submission. And Abraham didn't know all he would come to know about his life. But he knew that God was a God of promise, and that was enough. He knew the God, the I will God. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. I, you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. God, he understood, was a God of promise. So instead of asking, if I become a Christian, will I have to do X or Y? Maybe the better question is, what is my next step to know the God who can transform my life? What's the next step? What's the next thing I need to do to know the I will God of promise? And Abraham asked that question. And he got out of his family and he followed and he did it himself. Now there's one more deeper step if we're going to know God and that's to get out of yourself. Get out of your culture, get out of your family, Get out of yourself. Get out of yourself. In verses two and three, there are two clues, two phrases that tell us volumes about our purpose on this earth. God says to Abram, look, I will bless you so that you will be a blessing. And then in verse three, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. What does that tell us? It tells us that knowing God is a radical call to get out of ourselves. God's purpose in your life, isn't just about you. It's about other people. God doesn't pile up blessings in buckets so that we can keep them. God funnels his blessing through conduits so that he can share them with other people. That's what we are. We're not buckets, we're conduits. And any of those blessings that God gives you, whether it's time or talent or resources, 
He gives them to you so that you can funnel them and channel them to other people. And that's a game changer. It means that the question is no longer what will benefit me as I live my life. It's how will I most be a blessing to other people? And this final point is probably where most of us in this room live today. For the most part, we've probably left our culture. For the most part, we've probably left our family and and our faith is our own, right? But the final step in really knowing who God is, is am I blessing others? Am I stepping out and helping other people so that all my days on this earth lead to his name being great instead of my name being great? And the way we start that is to get out. Get out of yourself. Get out of the safe and the familiar and the comfortable of yourself and put other people first. That's not easy. That's not natural. It takes a plan. It takes effort. It takes a strategy. And that's what we give you every week. It's called bless, right? And it comes from this verse. I will bless you so that you will bless other people. We begin the day with prayer. God, who do you have for me to bless today? And then when we stumble upon those people that we pray about, we listen. We listen to them. We say, what are your needs? And we eat very strategically. We eat with those people. And when we're eating with them and listening to them, then we will know how to serve them. And that's what we do. We are blessed so that we bless other people. We serve them. And somewhere in that relationship, there will be a time that we can share the story of what God is doing in our lives. Those are some hints from the text that we can do. And all of us are somewhere on that spectrum. But that's how we can know God. But now I want to just to to close out today. I want to know how it's even possible to know God. How is it even possible? God hasn't ever shown up to me and spoke to me like he did Abram. How can I really know God? And in this text, there's something secret. There's something hidden. It's not even mentioned on the page, but it's present nonetheless. And it gives us the key to everything. Because of the way the stage is decorated, at least today, we're going to talk about uh, video games. And we have to go back to uh, biblical times to do that. 1980. Uh, Do you remember... What was around in those days? I remember the very first uh, game I played uh, that was the era of Pong. Anybody remember Pong? Yeah, we had a box and we had a dial on the box and it spun and a little line on the edge of the TV went up and down. Look at this, I can make it go up and down and I can bounce a little dot back where it came from. Look at this, it's on my TV. This is amazing. It's like we discovered fire back then, right? Then Atari came along. Oh, any Atari old timers out there? Yes, uh-huh. There's a guy named Warren Robinette, and Warren Robinette worked for Atari, and Atari had just been sold by its founders to raise capital, and the controlling company of Atari became Warren Communication, uh, Warner Communications, and they did control. Um, the programmers, like Robinette, were the best in their day. They were the hot shots. They were coming up with games like Space Invaders, that, that character's behind me, and uh, Breakout, you remember that? Or Mario Brothers, I think some of those characters are back there, or Pac-Man, or Pitfall. But Warner Communications, for all of the programmers' efforts, would never give them credit for their work. 
There were no names ever on any Atari box except the name of the game and Atari. The programmers never got any credit. Add to that the money that these games brought in. Some of you remember that too. Uh, Warren Robinette was the creator of a game called Adventure. And Adventure sold a million copies at $25 each. Of that, Atari got about half in income. Let's just say over 10 million. That was their profit. And what was Warren Robinette's cut? Eh, nada. He made $20,000 a year. And he never came up with a way to get a piece of those profits. But what he did come up with was a way to get some recognition. He came up with a way to get his name on the box without getting his name on the box. And the old school Atari freaks in the room know where I'm going. Robinette came up with a secret room in his game of adventure. And it was hard enough to get to that the Atari testers would not find it. But he was banking that one or two of the millions of kids that were going to play this game would stumble onto the secret room and they would figure out what it was for. And he was right. In the secret room was a little tiny dot. The game itself, the game of adventure, was about finding keys and unlocking rooms and rescuing princesses and evading the dragons and all of that. The dot, when they came to the secret room and they finally found the dot, the dot was a mystery. One kid stumbled into the secret room, found the dot, knew it was for something, and wouldn't let his parents turn off the TV for three weeks while he tried to figure it out. Because once you turn it off, (laughs) the game starts over. Finally, there's a kid in Salt Lake City who discovered that the dot itself was just another key. It didn't look like a key, but it was. And it was a key to yet another room. And in that other room, Warren Robinette had hidden his name. He had just typed it down the screen. Warren Robinette, created by Warren Robinette. Now, that's not a very big deal now, but that was the first time that had ever been done. And secrets like that would later become known as Easter eggs. And it's, it's common to find Easter eggs in about every video game now and, in, and also in movies about old games like Ready Player One. But then this was like someone landing on the moon if you're a kid playing the game. The creator of the game had written himself in to the game so that he could be known. And his name in the game was way more effective in the end than his name on the box. And the secret here in the text is very similar. It's, it's not obvious. You, you can miss it, but it's absolutely there. The secret is uncovered in this text with a question. Why does Abraham follow God? Why take this quest to know this God who claims to have created the game? And the answer is the son of promise. The son is not mentioned by name until much later. Abraham doesn't know when the son's gonna come, how the son's gonna come, where the son's gonna come, but the promised son is nonetheless behind every word that God speaks. I will make of you a nation. To have a nation, you need people. To have people, I need a son. My wife is barren. I will bless all the families of earth through yours, but don't I need to have a family if I'm going to bless all these people? We're at the end of the line for a family to happen. I need children. And by the way, my wife is barren. And it's this promise that Abraham holds on to. God promises a son and it's the key to everything. It's the promised son. 
and a family comes, and then a nation comes. And the first son of promise paves a way for us to know God as well. And that's what interests me today. How is it possible for me to know the God who created the game? How is it possible without God showing up and speaking to me like he did Abraham? I mean, that's kind of a leg up. How is it possible for me to know God when he never shows up for me? Oh, I think the Apostle John would argue with me a little bit. In his gospel, in the first chapter, he writes this, no one has ever seen God. He hasn't shown up, right? But the only God, the God who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Maybe the message version will get it over a little more clearly. It says, no one has ever seen God, not so much as a glimpse, but this one-of-a-kind expression who exists at the very heart of the Father. Who is he talking about? Jesus Christ. Jesus has made God plain as day. Isaac is the original son of promise, and Isaac points us to the greater son with the greater promise, Jesus, and it's through the son of promise, Jesus, that all families yours and mine, are blessed and we are able to know God because Jesus makes God known. Do you want to know God today? Just look at Jesus. Do you want to know the heart of God today? Get to know Jesus. That's it. That's simple. I remember the room where my friends were gathered and my neighbor Brock, who was the the chief video game player. (laughs) We were all at the TV And we've got adventure humming along because we took it out and blew on it and stuck it back in. And with glee, he said, let me show you what I found. And he went to the secret room and he picked up the little dot and he went to the other room. There it is, the name, Warren Robinette, the creator of the game, writing himself in so that he could be made known. That's what God has done with us. The creator of life wrote himself into the game so that everyone could know his name. When I come to the last day, what will it be like? How do I live this day so that there are no regrets on my last day? And the answer is to know Jesus. To know that he is king, sent by God, that he was nailed to a cross that he overcame death, and that he offers us the same when we will worship him as Lord and Savior. Jesus will never call you to do something that he hasn't done for you already. And today, today he asks us to get out, right? Get out of our culture, get out of your land, get out of your family, get out of your comfort, get out of yourself, get out and live for other people Those aren't things that Jesus hasn't already done himself. Jesus got out. Jesus left his land. He left his culture. He left his family. He left himself and gave his life for us. And because of that, we get a land. We get a family. We get a life forever. And people like Janice and Ryan, they know that. They've reached out for it, and they've received it. Father, we thank you that you preached, as Paul says in Galatians 3, 
to Abraham the gospel beforehand. Before the gospel was even a word, you preached the gospel to this guy named Abraham. And Abraham's way to know you was by promise. It was by you doing all the work, sending a son, ultimately cut off, ultimately forsaken for us. Would you help us to remember today that Jesus has done all the work for us? He's not just our example, but he's our substitute. He's holding up even our end of the bargain. And because of that, we get to be treated as if we were Jesus himself. Father, would you help us to know you a little more, a little deeper today? Maybe there's somebody in the room that hasn't known you to this point. Maybe they heard the call today and they know they need to step out of their culture. They need to step out so that their faith is their own. They need to step out and try to live for other people. Would you work on us today so that we know you and so that we become people who live as if we do? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand? And we're going to sing and worship together. If you need to know Jesus today, there will be somebody here in the front. You come as we sing.